Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lantesta, and this is our show for the week of October 29th, 2018. On today's show, listener questions about the train set between Germany and Italy. Also, coffee. I know that's what I think about when I wake up in the morning. Then Jim and I have found a bunch of new patents that provide even more clues about how Galaxy's Edge rides are going to work. On this week in Disney history, on October 31st, 1939, a bolt of lightning hits the elevator shaft at the Hollywood Tower Hotel, causing the disappearance of five people and, I think, four pieces of luggage. Not for nothing, but that elevator hasn't been the same since that fateful night. I'm sure our co-host agrees with me. Let's bring him in. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I hate it when I lose luggage. <laughs> like, like, you know that there's a receipt that someone has for that luggage. What happened there? That's right. Just getting your insurance company to settle when it's, well, it's in an alternate dimension. And it's like, well, we'll pay up to $200. But as far as <laughs> we Describe the luggage again. Are you sure you lost it? <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> All right, Jim, a quick story before we, uh, we do our listener questions. Laurel and I were on the, uh, the subway this past weekend. And we're on the one train, you know, going going downtown or whatever. And the train's not very crowded. But next to us are a couple of gentlemen who are playing D&D. Have I told you this story? No. They're playing D&D. And Laurel, Laurel and I are listening. And one guy is, uh, you know, describing the characteristics of the character that the other guy just created, right? So he's saying, you know, you've got this many hit points and you're... You're an ogre, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, they're really involved in like the game and he's describing the character and what his motivations are supposed to be and everything. And he's got all of these papers out. If you've ever seen like how D&D is played, right? He's got, he's got the manual, he's got these papers, he's got a logbook. And these guys are, you know, really, really into this discussion about the pros and cons of the character and what happens if the character encounters this and how does the character do that and things like that. So they're so involved in this conversation that they actually talk all the way through their stop. Like at the last minute, they realize that they, the doors are open and they have to get off at you know 42nd Street or whatever. So they run to the door. The first guy makes it through the door. The second guy's wearing a backpack. The, the dungeon master is wearing a backpack. And his backpack gets caught on the door as it's closing. And he, so his arm and his shoulder are like kind of in the door. And he's trying to like squeeze his way through with the backpack, you know, through the door closing. And at that moment, Laurel yells out, roll a 20. <laughs> the, the only thing that i that i wish was that there were more people on that train that would have heard that particular comment because i think it's the funniest thing i've ever heard it was classic wow. it's it's one of those things you, you only see in new york right true <laughs> Roll <a> 20. Kudos <laughs> to Laurel. killer comment <laughs> all right anyway on to listener questions this one comes from uh from jeff says, hi, Jim and Len. Uh, my three-year-old son is obsessed with the train set between Germany and Italy in World Showcase. Can you tell the story of how this train set appeared in Epcot? Will it survive if the Brazil Pavilion is built between Germany and Italy? Thanks, Jeff. So a quick uh, thing right there. My understanding is that that is actually the location for the proposed Brazil Pavilion, but it would be sort of a T-shaped pavilion with the narrow end of the T, the stick part of the T in the front, and then it's sort of expanding out left and right behind Germany and Italy. But, uh, but does that train set live through uh, any potential Brazil pavilion, Jim? First of all, uh, Jeff's talking about the Epcot Garden Railway, which, as you described, is in front of the expansion pad that's between Italy and Germany. It's in, on the Italian side of the German pavilion. When they put this in in 1995, it was something that debuted as part of the second year of Flower and Garden, 
they told you know the folks at Germany, look, don't get used to this, all right? Because <laughs> back in '89, they released the plans for the Swiss Pavilion, which again was supposed to be built between Italy and Germany. And it's like as soon as we get a, a Swiss corporation to fund the construction of the Walt Disney World version of Matterhorn Mountain, this thing has to move. And right. the plan was to just shift it to I want to say. The east side, uh, which is the, the side of the German pavilion that's close to China, there was always this contingency that it, it has to move, which is why this 50-foot by 130-foot setup was, quote-unquote, a temporary exhibit until finally in 2015, it's like, look, all right, it's been 20 years of temporary. The trains can vote at this point, right? So, yeah. yeah. Right. So it's like it, yeah, they actually... Shut it down for a number of months, poured a concrete base. Now it's permanent until, of course, something else comes in here. So this thing has lived so long that the company that originally made the trains, and I want to get this name right, it's Lehman Gross Bahn, which basically in the original German stands for Lehman's Big Train. These G-scale train cars mm -hmm. i think the company has gone into bankruptcy twice at this point so <laughs> the trains themselves have circled the earth uh, 17 yeah. times you know <laughs> so it's actually kind of tough now to keep this up and running i mean those of you who remember this setup in the 90s mm -hmm. i mean there were four separate large trains were like this there was a coal train you could watch a trolley and it always had this wonderful elaborate setup and you know there's a castle and a cathedral with gothic spires and that sort of thing. The initial conceit of this, Len, are you familiar with the Romantic Road in Germany? It's this route that goes through southern Germany that German travel agents put together in the late 50s, but it's some of the most scenic countryside in Germany. And so the thinking was, well, let's do that here. But that's what it's supposedly do. It's a miniature version of the Romantic Road. Oh, okay. I haven't been to Germany yet. It's one of the countries that uh, Laurel and I are supposed to go uh, together to check mm -hmm. off our Epcot World Showcase list. As time has gone by, this setup has taken a beating. And one of the reasons that happens is because if you think food and wine, if you think flower and garden and now the beverage component, all that, there's a lot of people at Epcot who are, what's the polite way to put this, overserved. <laughs> it's very diplomatic of you, James. <laughs> yes. And so they're the ones who are hoisting their children over the barrier. <laughs> Little toddler-sized Godzilla standing there in the Bavarian village. Or they're the ones who are whipping coins at the trains. And it's one thing to put a penny on a railroad track and let it get flattened by a full-size train. You, you do it here and you can literally derail the train. Right. If you're ever in Epcot as illuminations, you know, going away and, you know, summer or excuse me, late summer, early fall, 2019, some night when that show's going on, instead of facing at the World Showcase Lagoon, watching the fireworks, if you're ever by Germany, turn around. Because what happens is as that's going on, door opens up, cast member comes out with a little mobile cart, steps over the railing, gathers up the trains, and then takes them backstage where they are lovingly tended to and repaired to keep them going. Do the trains have understudies? Like they're, they're replacement trains if one of them isn't able to fulfill its duties? <laughs> the train equivalent of miscongeniality? <laughs> exactly. The runner, the train number. Runner. I'm sure there's got to be, right? There's got to be spares. Given what's been going on with LGB, you know, my understanding is it's, there's one dedicated Disney employee who every month or so goes on eBay looking for replacement cars. 
there's a guy in Germany in an alleyway goes up yeah. to it goes in, going up to middle-aged men going going trains for sale to answer Jeff's question yes if Brazil does indeed happen there's a contingency plan to move this setup to the other side of the German pavilion and I know for a lot of folks this is a favorite thing in fact what's what's so funny a lot of people talk about how they'll watch the videos of the train setup on YouTube, oh, and they'll actually, I feel my blood pressure lowering just watching. Oh, this is the, the equivalent of a slow TV, right? This is There the, you go. It's on YouTube, right? Yeah. In fact, there's one Disney has done kind of an interesting bend on it. They put a teeny tiny camera on one of the trains. And so you, you get a you know a, a train's eye view of the setup. What would we search for on YouTube to find that particular video? Garden Railroad at Epcot. If you use that term, that video will come up. It is a favorite. Every so often when I'm over there and sort of looking at it, it's Florida, <laughs> you know, with, with the little lizards that are everywhere. And every so often it's like, it suddenly takes that 1950s really bad horror film bend when it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's the giant it's, oh, monster no, the attacking lizards the train. Are attacking the cathedral. <laughs> but anyway, thanks, Jeff, for that question. All right, Jim, uh, another listener question we got was related to the piece that we did a couple of shows ago on the history of Starbucks mm-hmm. in Disney mm-hmm. theme parks. And the, the question was, before Starbucks, what were the coffee agreements in place at the Disney parks and resorts? And apparently this goes a ways back, doesn't it? It does. It does. Well, I, I think we mentioned as, as part of the earlier show that the very first one was Hills Brothers. And, and they actually had a coffee house on Town Square at Disneyland. They're on Main Street from like 1958 all the way through the winter of 76. But one that's kind of interesting, and in fact, had the biggest impact really on the company prior to Starbucks, was the uh, Nestle's deal. Right. Okay. So yeah. So the the question that we got was how, how in God's name did Nestle end up in the theme parks? Disney cut this particular deal because, uh, in fact, this deal starts in 1992. Starting in 1992 is when the 10-year sponsorship agreements for Epcot are running out. And Kraft Foods could not leave fast enough. (laughs) They were like, all right, this didn't work. We're not going to renew. And so Disney, desperate to keep somebody as the sponsor of the Land Pavilion, turns around and gets Nestle's. Not only that, they signed Nestle's to a 15-year deal. Wow. Which starts uh, January 1st, 1993. The way the deal works is it's licensing, it's joint marketing, it's it tie-in promotions at the parks and all that. But Nestle's is is a sharper cookie than Kraft was. So Nestle's is like you know, tell you what, we're going to limit what we'll spend in the parks. We'll only put two million dollars a year into Epcot, which explains a lot about sort of the slow change out of that pavilion. Listen with the land shuts down in 92 comes back is living with the land in december of 93 and anybody who remembers that change out it was like what you move the alligator (laughs) after that in 94 kitchen cabaret closes and we get food rocks which again when you remember the elaborate aa figures that they had for kitchen cabaret versus what showed up in food rocks which was characters that mostly seem to be made of coat hangers and folding chairs mm-hmm. done on the cheap and then jumped to 95 and symbiosis with all of its widescreen photography goes away and in its place we end up with circle of life which was produced 90 percent of that was animated in florida at disney feature animation at disney mgm and that was largely done there because it was cheaper 
Yeah, it lasted lasted twenty years. It's not a bad uh, not a bad run for any movie. This is true, but but again, you get the sense that this was all done on the cheap, and even if we jump ahead to two thousand four when Food Rocks finally closes, the mm-hmm. only time we got an investment of size really in that pavilion was when they built the outside theaters for soaring. Right. That's the big investment in the in the land pavilion, Soren. Yeah, and that hmm. was really okay. on Disney's dime. At this point, Nestle was just sort of like, yeah, you know, this isn't working out for us either. But as a direct result of this deal, one of the, the things is Nescafe becomes the official coffee for Disney parks and resorts. And the only problem is that cast members and guests, most of them don't like Nescafe. In fact, the, the not-so-polite name that... They had for this beverage was Nest Crap Fay. Yes, it's not. It's not great coffee. It's not great coffee. So the deal runs out in two thousand eight, okay. uh, and it's about this time that Disney starts to eyeball the idea of well, well, our guests deserve a quality cup of coffee. Could we maybe look at bringing in Starbucks? And about this exact same time, the partners of Starbucks they had a, a dedicated website for the company called My Starbucks Idea. And the interesting thing is that an idea that kept coming up over and over again that the, the partners were suggesting is that, look, we should partner with Disney. We should get our coffee into the parks and resorts. So sure. April of 2012, that's what happens. Disney announces that six locations in their theme parks will start serving Starbucks beverages and food things. But do you know the story about when Howard Stern first started broadcasting in New York? No. They did the ratings for his show, and it turns out that people who really, really like to listen to Howard Stern would listen to his morning show on average for an hour and 20 minutes, whereas people who absolutely hated Howard Stern would listen to his show for two and a half hours? <laughs> it's it's true. It's, it's called hate listening, right? It's the same thing on, on the internet as hate reading, right? I hate read my old town's uh, newspaper every morning. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but this is the thing. For as many people who, who make Starbucks, you know, a cup of Starbucks coffee, a, a part of their daily routine, there's an even larger number of people who just hate the whole concept of Starbucks, hate the whole tall, grande, vente thing. Right, right. It's not so much the the coffee, but they may not like the coffee, but it's also the culture that goes along with it. Yeah. So here's Disney, just the realization that, yeah, we're going to turn off a whole market segment by bringing this in. So we need to have an alternative for them. And at the same time, we haven't had a good relationship with these giant corporations like Kraft and Nestle. So they discovered this company based out of Tampa called Joffrey Coffee and Tea. They've been around since 1984 and they're really dedicated to doing quality blends of coffee okay the way disney announces this we're excited to announce plans to bring your favorite starbucks drinks and food items to all of our theme parks mm-hmm. whereas with joffrey's the language the company used was that joffrey coffee and tea would now become the official specialty coffee provider for Walt Disney World, Disneyland, and the Disney Vacation Resorts. So the specialty coffee provider. All right. So Starbucks is your your day-to-day, your quotidian, as it were, mm-hmm. coffee provider. But Joffrey's is the specialty. So what kind of specialty coffees does Joffrey's offer? If you go to the Joffrey's Coffee and Tea site, they actually sell... Well, let me back up for a second here. Joffrey's folks sat down with the individual chefs for a lot of the signature restaurants at Walt Disney World and Disney. You know, we're talking things like Yachtman Steakhouse. We're talking about Artist Point. 
every one of the really big signature and came up with a specific blend of coffee. Oh, you're right. I'm on the I'm on the Disney website. There's there's dozens of these. Yeah, and not only that, but, but just this year. There's a Trattoria El Forno special blend. <laughs> but just this year for, for Mickey's 90th uh, anniversary, they've created a special blend of coffee. It's supposedly a smooth, medium roasted coffee that's classic and delectable. But And this is part of their first really for real retail push that yeah, Joffrey's is out in stores around the country right now doing this Mickey's 90th blend. And I think there's also a, a mini pack with a couple of the individual resorts and that sort of thing. But Yeah, there's a sampler, yeah. They've got a blend for Tiffin's. They've got a blend for Alani. Yeah, there's there's 35 different options here on this uh, on the yeah. screen. It's uh, joffreys.com, yeah. I am kind of one of those, I don't like Starbucks guys, because again, I get in there and it's like, do I want a tall? Do I want a vente? Do I want a grain? I want coffee. Just give me coffee. Yeah, just like a... Just like an eight-ounce cup of coffee, please. Regular coffee. Yes, yeah. but but at the same time, I look at this, and now suddenly I'm like, well, I I wonder what the California grilled coffee is like. And I live in fear now that I'm going to end up with 35 individual bags of beans that I'm going to have to grind. <laughs> Are they whole beans? Yeah, whole bean. You can buy a whole bean French press or, or ground. Mm -hmm. Look at that. Joffrey's, you've yep. thought of everything. Specialty blend versus Starbucks, which again serves its beverages and food. I love these special terminology deals that Disney cut so <laughs> things can exist side by side. Exactly. Yes. You're, yeah. I mean, yes. Yes. You're, you're my you're my main coffee partner, but we need a specialty <laughs> coffee provider. Exactly. All right, Jim. All of this uh, talk has made me thirsty. Let's take a quick commercial break. When we get back, we'll talk about uh, some new patents that Disney's filed for what we think are the Galaxy's Edge attractions. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Grab a cup of coffee and we'll, uh, we'll meet you back here in a minute. And we're back. All right, James, following up here on the Galaxy's Edge attractions. Disney's filed some new patents here, but, but just to sum up, we know about the Millennium Falcon ride. We've talked about that on a, a couple of episodes ago, right? So you're piloting the Millennium Falcon. We know less about the second ride in Galaxy's Edge, which is supposedly codenamed Alcatraz. Right now, we do know we're we're pretty sure anyway. It's a two-part battle escape attraction. Mm -hmm. We think the first part of this is an actual ride ride, and my understanding is you're going to be put in a spaceship, leaving Batu, perhaps on a diplomatic mission, like the one that Princess Leia is on at the beginning of the first Star Wars movie, Episode Four. During that mission, you're chased by a star destroyer again, like in the first movie. There's a brief fight, and uh, at the end of the first part of this new attraction, you end up captured on a Star Destroyer. We think that's the first part of the ride. Jim, does that comport with what you think is going to happen here? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, those are basically the story beats. I mean, the conceit is that, you know, if you come in and we're talking, say, the Grand Avenue entrance by Muppet Vision, you, you, you come in there in the middle of the forest and you have a squadron of X-Fighters that are, are parked there in the woods. And right. the supposedly there, they're the ones who talk you up, you know, to the effect of go over to the ruin there and board the vessel and we need your help with this mission. And once you actually get up on the Star Destroyer, in fact, they had this model on display at the D23 Expo. It's an eight-passenger, for lack of a better term, golf cart kind of a thing that's driven by a droid. And We've all now seen that footage of that pair of Atas, the, you know, the giant armed mm -hmm. vehicle that actually turn and threaten to fire on you. All right. So you're on this Star Destroyer. You're captured. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, the at the end of the ride, you have to end up back on Batuu somehow. Mm -hmm. 
right? Uh, so there's a, you have to escape and you have to find something, some sort of escape pod or something like that to get back to Batu. That's the the idea of the second part of the ride. Now, we know from the patents that Disney's filed and that we've already talked about that Disney's planning for this second part of the ride to be an augmented reality experience, right? We think you'll be given helmets with screens on them. We think you'll be given lightsabers and we think there'll be some sort of hologram or computer graphics technology that shows you the route you need to follow to escape. I think I think we're all safe on that, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so here's, here's some interesting new patents that Disney's filed that sort of support the same idea. One of the, the first one I want to talk about is this thing called a dynamic haptic effects generator. So if you look at this patent, it shows uh, somebody playing a game with uh, holding some sort of controller or again, a lightsaber. Uh, they're wearing a helmet and then there's a seat nearby. All three of these things are able to generate haptic effects. So, you know, through vibration or buzzing or whatever to tell you that something's going on. So for example, the lightsaber might might buzz to tell you that somebody's shooting at you and you're blocking it. The helmet might buzz to tell you that somebody's tapping you on the helmet. In the Star Wars virtual reality game at Disney Springs, Secrets of the Empire, you're actually wearing a vest with haptic feedback and the vest vibrates every time you get shot by one of the stormtroopers. So this patent explains even more, but goes into detail on how the helmet you're wearing will have uh, these effects in it. That seems to be another giveaway that uh, you're going to be wearing some sort of hat-like thing uh, on this ride. Every time they hand you a new thing to wear or handle or that sort of thing, it always makes you a little nervous because the number of people who come to Walt Disney World whose English is not their primary language. Right. I look at these things and I think exactly the same thing. How long is it going to take to put this stuff on and take it off? And what does that do to ride capacity, right? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I dearly want to experience this. I just don't want to be behind the 86-year-old grandma that doesn't know how to operate it. What am I talking about? I'm the 59-year-old man who can't operate the remote <laughs> controls of my You're going to be the house. person that we don't want to be behind, Jim. There we go. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, don't get behind that guy. He can't, get, can't even operate his iPhone, let alone this. The second one is this thing called virtual reality experience script writing. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind this patent is this. As uh, virtual reality being a 3D environment with computer-generated things is different than a script writing for two-dimensional things like a movie or a play so that you need special tools to be able to immerse the script writers in the story as they're imagining things, right? So it's one thing to say as you're designing a, a, a virtual reality story, you know, Jim, Jim walks into the room and picks up the lightsaber. He spins it around. But it's another thing to say, this is where Jim's going to be in the room this is what he's going to see when he spins it around, right? You have to put yourself in the character's perspective to understand what they're going to see when they're in the, the room. So this patent talks about how to add computer-generated uh, technology as you're writing the script to sort of wireframe how the whole process is going to work. The fact that Disney's working on uh, on this tells me that they're writing scripts for virtual reality experiences, right? This isn't the kind of thing that you just think up over lunch on a Sunday, it's the kind of thing that you think up if you're actively doing it every day, right? Yeah. We also have a lot of Marvel stuff that's coming that, frankly... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't necessarily, you know, an arrow that's going into only one quiver here, Len. We've seen both in Hong Kong and in Paris, giant Avenger headquarters buildings. It's sort of right. what we've seen from Tony Stark's, you know, upstate New York compound where it's entirely possible that, you know, you'll get dropped into a trainer uh, using some of this technology as well. Oh, that reminds me, on the uh, the latest version of the Disneyland Paris park map, there are a couple of attractions that are now missing from that map. I think uh, one of them is the, what's the uh, what's the space disaster 
Armageddon. Oh, yes, Armageddon. Armageddon yes. is missing. And I think Rock and Roller Coaster is missing from the, the 2019 park map. Is that an indication of things to come? I mean, Ar- Armageddon should have been like a one summer sort of attraction. Armageddon we know for sure because there's concept art out there for an Iron Man arc reactor uh, right. experience. Rock and Roller Coaster, we've heard a, a number of times now that both for the stateside park as well as Paris that the thing of, of Rock and Roller Coaster is you've got Aerosmith, but beyond that, it's it's a generic coaster. And the, right. now that Bob Chapek is in charge of Disney parks and resorts and immersive experiences and mints that you leave on your pillow, he's very much about all of these rides have to support some sort of IP if they are, in fact, retrofitting Rock and Roller Coaster to include a Marvel storyline, if you like the Aerosmith version at Disney Hollywood Studios, I would get in a couple of rides because chances are that means come stateside, that's going to lose Steven Tyler and company fairly shortly as well. Ha, huh, okay. So that's that's what to expect on that. All right, very good. Back to the patents, Jim. The third one, and I think this one's kind of interesting. Bear with me on the title. It's mm-hmm. Compact perspectively correct occlusion-capable augmented reality displays. A lot of words there, right? But but let's mm. think about how augmented reality systems work. You've, you've got a computer-controlled camera. It's showing you a picture of the world. And along with that picture, the computer is adding things that aren't really there, like cartoon characters. And, and the way that the computer adds those things is by manipulating the light that's going on the screen and that, that hits your eyes. So aug- augmented reality works in part by adding light to generate the things that you see. Now, remember, virtual reality is different. In, in VR, the computer is generating everything. We're not talking about that. But in AR, right, the problem with AR is that it, it's not good at displaying effects that are black because black is the absence of light. And so you can't add light to show black. Not for nothing, Jim, but Darth Vader mostly wears black. Uh, <laughs> so in an AR setting, it's really hard to generate Darth Vader. It's mm-hmm. also hard, you know, to generate the black empty void of space or, you know, the heart of former Smith singer Morrissey, really, really dark things, right? But but that's what this patent solves. Like, mm-hmm. how do you show black things in augmented reality? And again, going back to the, the thing that we talked about for the script writing patent, these are super specific yeah. patents, right? How do we generate effects that are black mm-hmm. in an AR environment? This isn't, again, something that you just think up on a, while lounging around the, the lunchroom, right? This is something that... You, you patent because it's got an immediate application to what you're working on, right? Not to belabor the obvious, but think about it. We've got the space restaurant coming up. We've got the Star Wars right. hotel. Right. You know, we've got so many things that are set in the dark void of space where the very issue you're talking about here has to be addressed, let alone, again, a major character, not to, to forget about Kylo Ren, who also... As you know, a somewhat black. monochromatic yeah. wardrobe. So, no, you're right. I would imagine this one is going to get put into use probably as early as 2019. The last one I want to talk about that's uh, Star Wars related is this thing. It's called incorporating external guests into a uh, virtual reality environment. And, and here's the basic problem it solves. You know, like in a virtual reality environment, uh, there are sensors that track where you are in the room and what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a problem when you have lots of people in the room that are moving. It's it's difficult for the sensors to figure out who's moving where and how, especially if everyone's sort of clumped together. So the way around that is by putting people in different rooms and then making it seem like they're all together. Because if you're in an individual room by yourself, it's much easier to track what you're doing 
in the motions that you're making. Mm -hmm. But still, you want to keep everybody together in the VR experience. So you have to figure out a way to uh, keep everybody isolated, but make it look like they're together. This is what that patent does. Oh, I know from the stuff that they do with, at the void where you get these sensation of what the breastplate when you're fired at or, or yeah yeah but that's but that's like four people and i don't know that you can do more than four people mm -hmm. in that because even even with four sometimes very rapid movements don't uh, don't often get picked up in this situation given that so many of these experiences now have that sort of team building component we're all working right. together wow this is really next generation stuff we're talking about here isolating people and yet convincing them they're part of a group experience. Right. And it would also work for, for home-based games too, right? What if we needed, you know, what if, what if you and I were playing Secrets of the Empire, but I'm in Florida and you're in the woods of New Hampshire, and, mm -hmm. but yet we wanted to play together. What do you, what do, you do? Well, if you're, you're playing a virtual reality game with me, you're mostly cursing at the screen because it's like, Jim, pick up <laughs> over, the Over here, Jim. You, over here. You keep here, walking <laughs> into the wall, Jim. <laughs> no, the A button, Jim. Not the, not, not, not the B button. The A button, Jim. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. All right. So the last uh, one, I'm, I'm not sure if this particular patent has anything to do with Star Wars or if it's just another attraction idea, but uh, it's this. It's system and method of simulating first-person control of remote-controlled vehicles. So I think you've you've seen these kind of videos before, Jim, but imagine you put a camera on a drone and you were able to fly the drone around and see what the drone is seeing. It's fairly popular in radio-controlled aircraft right now, sort of first-person viewing of the, uh, of the aircraft. But Disney's patented this, but for theme park attractions and games. And the explanation that they give is actually pretty interesting. They're saying if you're in a theme park and you're watching a film, and for this, by the way, I would, I would keep Soren in your head, as you're going through this, you're in a film, everyone gets exactly the same experience. But what mm -hmm. if everyone didn't have to have exactly the same experience, right? What if everyone had a slightly different experience? What if you could control your own individual hang glider in Soren? That's basically what this patent says, um, using remote-controlled vehicles. I was just talking with somebody, because you can got to remember, the live-action version of Mulan is now being shot in China. Those of you who remember Mulan from, from 98... The Hun charge when, you know, those thousands upon thousands of people come pouring down on, on Mulan and their friends, you know, who have to, to stop this horde. They've been planning out, you know, it's a very famous camera move from that film. And it's the notion of we are trying to recreate that, you know, this memorable moment from animated film, live action with CG. The very thing you're talking about, this notion of, you know, flying over a simulated terrain and trying to do it as dramatically as possible with this faux drone. The interesting comment was like, oh man, wouldn't it be cool if an attraction could do this? Oh, is that what that, oh, okay, okay. Right, so I didn't think it was uh, Star Wars related, but okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, there's this subset of Disney fans who would love to be inserted in the story or, or to take that sort of hands-on film experience where you could sort of, be in a space and whip around. Right. Conversely, remember that for the longest time we've been hearing about not so much a real world-based soaring, but, you know, there's always been that title out there that Disney sort of been kicking the tires on about soaring over fantasy, where you literally fly over all of these amazing Disney kingdoms, that, you know, like, you know, the moment that, say, Belle is out wandering in her little provincial French village right. or... They could never get people to commit, you know, to put the money in to do this because it sort of limited where you could put this, you know, in the sort of parks. You couldn't put it in the Disney movie park. You couldn't put it in an Epcot. Right. But on the other hand, you could do it 
that this is for the parks and gaming for folks who want to sit at home and strap on their VR goggles and control the drone that takes them over Agrabah or takes them over the Forbidden City in Mulan. There's lots and lots and lots of applications for this potentially at Disney. The two ideas that came to me, and again, because I'm, I, I've been dealing with Disney for 20 years, um, mm. I, I was thinking of them as revenue opportunities. But mm-hmm. some sort of Epcot dessert party where you get to fly your own Illuminations drone. <laughs> who, who wouldn't pay for that, Jim? <laughs> first thing first thing that came to my mind is like, how is Disney going to charge for this and what is it going to be? Uh, mm. And so I'm thinking, you know, nighttime Illuminations spectacular, spectacular, something like that. Or imagine you're watching like the Magic Kingdom fireworks, but you get a drone's eye view of it. Right, and you get to pilot your own drone around uh, the fireworks. I think that's an interesting idea. That sounds wonderful. I, I guess this reveals how low to the ground I actually am. But I just, I immediately thought of the battle bots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, could see my drone sure attack another drone. Man, what would I pay for that? So <laughs> you would, you can't fly the drones directly into the to the castle or into the fireworks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I get all that. Glenn, you the uh, the other fun. one though would be uh, imagine the Soren ride, but Soren over Epcot where you get to control a drone that flies over Epcot. That would be cool. Disney, if you're listening, you know where to send the checks, so we mm-hmm. appreciate it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for uh, for this show. You've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go into iTunes or Stitcher or you know send up a banner on a drone and write us some comments and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>